This podcast is brain powered by the University of Sydney. We are controlling transmission. Dr. Carl and Adam Spencer. We are Sleek Geek Podcasting, Dr. Carl Kruzelnitsky and myself, Adam Spencer. I hope you're enjoying listening to the podcast so far, though really all you've listened to is me saying welcome to the podcast. If you're happy now, you're easily satisfied, and that's the sort of listener we like to this podcast. Carl. Yo. Animals. Love animals. Running wheel. Little, little mouse. Is there anything cuter than a mouse in a pet shop just on a little spinning wheel running away? Or maybe in a laboratory doing exercises? Why do we, why do we put animals on spinning wheels? So the um, animal behaviourists can then see what effect exercise has on health, uh-huh. on circadian rhythms, on those small adam- animals, and then try to get it on us. And in fact, it turns out that something like 15 to 20 million laboratory rats put themselves forward to volunteer to work in a laboratory every year. That's really? how much they love it. Good on them. Aren't they nice? You might, for example, be uh, giving it a certain calorie do- amount of the diet mm. and then exercising to see the weight difference and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Okay. But then people have thought, hang on, maybe we're being cruel to the animals. Mm-hmm. And really, you don't want to be cruel. Maybe they were running... Uh, because they're unhappy to be in a cage, and maybe the running was what they call a neurotic repetitive behaviour. Right. Because a reaction to stress and, and showing. Money. If you look at any aftermath of you know on TV, yep. a natural disaster like yep. an earthquake or a personal calamity, you'll see people rocking backwards and forwards. Ah, uh, yes. And we call this a stereotypic behaviour. Mm-hmm. Repetitive, unchanging, seems to have no goal. So a couple of scientists in the Leiden University Medical Centre in the Netherlands said, well. Let's take the running wheels out of the laboratory and into the open. Mm-hmm. And by the open, they had two of them. One of them was a green urban area, which I'd like to point out is fancy scientific talk for one of their backyards. Okay. And the other, <laughs> and the other one was a, a sandy dune area that the public didn't have general access to. Mm-hmm. So you've got these running wheels inside a bigger cage. The bigger cage is to keep big animals out. So it's got a little tiny door. Right, yep. So only the little animals can get in there. And they put food in there to attract the local wildlife and, of course, an infrared camera and a motion sensor and all that sort of stuff. And after two years, they found that in the backyard... After two years? After two years, they found that a 1,000 animals had gone into the run for a wheel in the backyard and about 250 in the dune area. And overwhelmingly, they were wild mice. But there were a few rats and shrews and frogs and birds and snails and slugs dropping in to do some running, hopping and slithering. Slugs? Yes. Slithering, slithering on an exercise wheel? Slugs were number two and slugs in popularity, and they would slither for hours. Really? That's right. So the next time someone sees an animal banging away on one of those wheels in a lab and thinks the animal's not enjoying themselves, there's some evidence that the natural, uninhibited state of an animal is to want to hop on an exercise wheel and give it a burl. But maybe they were coming for the food, so they removed the food. Ah. And then they kept it going for 16 months, and there were still animals coming, and some of these animals, about half of them, were mice that had been born after they stopped providing food. And they were dropping in with the specific goal of running on the wheel at their neighbourhood mouse gym, and they knew what they were doing. Like, they'd hop off It's just the, the place to be. Yeah, they'd run for a bit, and they'd think, oh, I'm a bit buggered now. Yeah. Hop off, and they'd wait there, and then another mouse would hop on, and then they'd swap over, and then they'd hop back on again. And then, in fact, their, their top speed on the wheel was 5.7 kilometres per hour, which is higher than the top speed that lab mice ever got to. Wow. So quick, go and, go and tell the other mice to get here now because the slugs are coming around this afternoon, and once they're here, they'd really take their time. Now, all we know is that they do it voluntarily. So in humans, about half to two-thirds of all early deaths 
are related to lifestyle. Too much food, not enough exercise, and the like. H- half to two-thirds of, to two-thirds of all early deaths yeah, are voluntarily caused. Are related to lifestyle. In particular, a lot of that is diet and nutrition. Wow. And so exercise it helps you grow new brain cells and stops, it reduces ageing, slows it down, reduces various cancers and diabetes. Now, with the mice... We don't know what's going on. We know that they voluntarily go for a run. Do they know that exercise is good for them? Or are they secret druggies trying to get the runner's high that comes from the endorphins Ah. or the endocannabinoids? Are they working on their thighs? Um, Or are they simply playing or having fun? And would they have more people doing it if they had more mice doing it, if they had mirrors in there? Or is it that the mice think that it's really a lot of fun? Oh, God. I'm I can't. Sorry. I can't believe you spoke that. Oh, oh yeah, come on, Will. What you did, and then uh, spoke. 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 Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, you took it to oh. a higher level. Oh, you, you can't just Ooh. stop, can you? Apologies, dear listeners. Please keep listening to our Sleep Geeks podcast. You're on the Sleep Geek podcast with myself, Adam Spencer, and Dr. Carl Kruschelnitsky. Adam, let me tell you about stories and bedtime stories. You tell me a bedtime story. You tell bedtime stories about how the kids are scared, there's a little fairy who's always looking after them and then there's stars floating Mm. through the eye. If they see lights through the window, that's a fairy shining. Or if they misbehave, the monster under the bed will come and eat them. one I love. Love it. Now, it turns out that storytelling in Australian Aborigines is that plus a whole lot more. Okay. It's has a very strong scaffolding structure that incorporates things such as kin-based responsibility. So in telling you the story about how this person did that, you now have an obligation to your future mother-in-law or to your cousin or something like that. The whole society is tied together by these stories. And the scientists have found 18 cases where these stories have been told so accurately over the last, wait for it, 10,000 years... Wow. ..that they have described... Uh, landscape masses that have been buried underwater in various places around Australia, such as Port Phillip Bay. They talk about somebody chasing the kangaroos and they went chasing it and then the person was very angry and the waters rose, leaving just some rocks just below the surface now and they go looking and they find these rocks just below the surface in Port Phillip Bay. If you're talking 10,000 10, years... 10,000 years of accurate so storytelling. Allowing 20 to 30 years... Per generation, you're 40, talking 400. Yeah, you're talking what 400 mother to daughter, father to son retellings of a story, and and they're they're, they're accurate to the point of scientifically verifiable. That's right. References so, to sea level rise, and that's fascinating. Well, this is there's a whole series of books about what they call the song lines, mm. and the song lines are a way of learning the story, so that if you and your aged father are travelling in the western deserts of Australia specifically, and you're really short of water, and your father says, Adam. If we walk for three days past that little tiny bump on the store, uh, on the horizon, we walk for three days and then turn left, we'll find some water. And you need somebody who is both older and who has super sharp eyesight. Uh-huh. The Aborigines have got super sharp eyesight in the western deserts of Australia. The average person, six on six. They can see it six metres, but the average person can see it six metres. Which is what we used to call 2020 because it's 20 feet on 20 feet. So the average person has 20-20 vision. Yeah. If you're lucky, you might find six on five. Yep. There's a, Some of these Aborigines are at six on three, and in the Western Deserts, 
six on one and a half. They are four times sharper. On, on one occasion... I was, wow. I was, it's I got get, more pixels. Uh, smaller pixels. They've got smaller pixels. And I remember on one occasion, I was in a national park near Broken Hill and the Aboriginal guy said, there, see that tree over there? And I said, yeah, yeah. And they see the kangaroo under the tree? And I said... Not really. I can see something move. And he said, well, well, see, it's got a little joey with it. I couldn't see the joey. I pulled out the binoculars. I could see the joey with the binoculars. He could see it with the naked eye. Wow. So firstly, we've got these people who have to know their stories accurately over thousands of years mm-hmm. because otherwise you die. You don't get to the water. And that matches up with incredible acuity of human senses. Mm. Wow. And so we've got examples of this, 18 examples around Australia with regard to Kangaroo Island and the Tiwi Islands and Rottnest Island, and we've got the... Spencer uh, Gulf. Spencer, Spencer Gulf is... Speci- well, is that related to you, Adam? Named after Adam Spencer. Like, How like, wise... It's very the, nice, and they named a golf after me. Yeah, well, before you people came here, the story is told by the Narangara people, and uh, it was a floodplain lined with freshwater lagoons, and when they go drilling... They can find, in fact, that where they were told the freshwater lagoons would be, that there are, in fact, the creatures buried in the sediment 10,000 years old. You're on the Sleek Geek Podcast with Adam Spencer and Dr. Carl. Dr. Carl and Adam Spencer. Very serious scientific matter here, Dr. Carl. We've talked about this before in our live shows, the science of breaking the seal. People will sometimes, if they're at a social function, they need to go to the bathroom and say, excuse me, I'm just going to go and break the seal, i.e. urinate for the first time at that social function. And keep on urinating all night long. Why is it you can go two hours before needing to do it and then suddenly every 10 minutes, sorry, got to go, got to go, got to uh, go. Right. How, it, it can't just take another 10 minutes to fill up. No, so what you've got to think of is a, a, a sponge, a perfectly dry sponge. It's 100% dry. It's, it's crinkly and, and, and hard and, mm. and then you've got a tap. And you're dripping water slowly onto that tap. That's that's it. That 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 is the metaphor for you ingesting a little bit of alcohol, of yeah, or liquid, yeah, liquid, yep. And so it gradually the sponge goes from dry to moist mm-hmm. to then it gets saturated. Yeah. And then at around the two hour mark, you put in one more drop of water, and another one comes out the bottom end. Ah, because the sponge is holding as much as it can now. Every drop in has to be matched by a drop out. But then there's two more factors. Two more. It's not just every drop in is another drop out. Firstly, for every 200 mils of beer you drink, 320 mils of urine. How do you get more urine than the beer that came in? You, the alcohol works on the anterior pituitary in the brain and it works on a chemical called vasopressin, also called antidiuretic hormone. And basically it says, this Adam needs to suffer tomorrow for having too much alcohol or I want to make him dehydrated. So you, for every 200 mils of beer in, that's 320 mils of urine out. So for every drop into the sponge, about one and a half drops are being created to come out. Yep. And then there's another factor, which is that when you're coming around to my place to have a big night out. You don't yep. say, Carl, lay up those six big glasses of water. I'm going to have my way through these glasses of water. I'm going to drink my way. Oh, yeah. Whereas with the beer, well, you've had one, so of course you've got to have another one and you just keep on going. Now, you end up in this weird situation where you are both dehydrated with not dark urine. Yes. And people say, hang on, I'm on a work site, I'm working out in the outback, or and I'm going on a run, and if I have small quantities of dark urine, I know that I am dehydrated. Yep. How can I possibly be dehydrated if I don't have dark urine? Yes. And the answer is 
You've taken a drug which mucks up the normal natural order of your body. Ah. And so it ignores the fact that it should be pulling back. As you get dehydrated, you should be making less urine. And in fact, this drug says, ha ha, more urine. And in fact, by the way, I could have another beer at the same time. There you go. Thank you very much, Dr. Carl. What's up? Twitter time. Yeah. Come on. Twitter. On Twitter, Carl, we've been asked, is there a predicted water temperature increase from anthropogenic global warming? If yes, what are the consequences of less dissolved oxygen? So let's take it one step at a time. Mm. Oceans, people would have heard this, the oceans suck in a lot of the heat, don't they? The overwhelming majority. So each day, thanks to the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, more heat is trapped than was trapped, say, 200 years ago because of the extra carbon dioxide. So heat comes down from the sun, hits the earth, Mm -hmm. bounces back, Mm -hmm. but then the carbon dioxide, the, the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere trap some of that heat in, yeah? They absorb it and they radiate it back down to the ground. That's the greenhouse effect. That has been gone through different names, the greenhouse effect, then global warming, then climate change, same thing. And the amount of heat is the amount of heat given off by exploding 400,000 Hiroshima atom bombs every day. That's how much heat is being trapped in the system called the Earth. Only a few percent remains in the atmosphere and 93% goes into the oceans. And we have measured this. We have measured that there's an increase of 0.05, sorry, 005.005 degrees centigrade from zero to 500 metres down. And then from 500 metres to two kilometres, we've measured 0.002 increase. It doesn't sound like a big number, except for the fact that the specific heat of water is enormous. And if that heat had not gone into the oceans, the air temperature would be 70 degrees C and there'd be no life as we know it on planet Earth. Can the oceans just keep sucking up more and more heat endlessly? Endlessly, no. For a while, yes. And in fact, this... I was listening to somebody who was a global warming sceptic, Patrick Moore, who used to be the head of Greenpeace. And he interpreted what I said about the certain temperature change from naught down to 500 metres and from 500 metres to two kilometres as the scientists have said there's no increase in heat in the ocean below two kilometres. Now, does that mean that he didn't read the paper properly or does that mean that he's cherry-picking? So the point is that this heat is going to come back out one day. And that's the reason for the slight decrease in the rate of global warming. It's still the the so-called pause in global warming. There was no pause. In fact, the three, four hottest days have happened since 1988. 2005 is the hottest year, then 2010, then 2014. So the world is still heating up. But just ever so slightly, not much, just a slightly reduced rate because there's been an increase, a massive increase in the amount of heat going into the oceans. And we know from our understanding of the models, that the heat will come back someday. It will come back out. We are controlling planet. I don't understand what's going on here. Sleep cakes.